everybody got a hall pass in a way for basically producing the the most ubiquitous pesticide on the face of the earth. It's not DDT, it's not parathion, it's not malathion, it's glyphosate. And and whoever thought, whether internally or externally in the EPA, thought that a water-soluble pesticide was a good idea. I mean, how did that happen? Every even the worst pesticide company knew they had to be fat soluble, okay? So that it didn't get into water, it didn't break down in the water, it didn't go in the water table, you know. And so it was had to be lipophilic, and and then now we have a hydrophilic pesticide, you know, which guarantees it is in every almost every water system in the Midwest, you know, if you have a well, you're gonna get glyphosate. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Real Organic Podcast. Our special guest today, Paul Hawken, has just published a new book titled Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. If you read his last book, Drawdown, then you know that Paul's work is crucial and it's filled with solutions that every person, community, or organization can engage with at every level. So we really wanted to share the news about regeneration with you and offer you a chance to hear more from Paul. Let's get back to the conversation with Paul and my co-director, Dave Chapman. Well, welcome to the Real Organic Podcast, and I'm very pleased to be talking with Paul Hawkins today. Paul is uh, somebody I've been having a one-sided conversation with for many years, um, starting with Magic of Findhorn, perhaps his first book, and going on through uh, growing a business, the ecology of commerce, natural capitalism, blessed unrest, and drawdown. And uh, for me, each one of these books was really a gift um, and a chance to think about things um, from a, a, a very fresh perspective. And on top of that, I've been a customer of two of Paul's early businesses. I was a food customer at Erwan and then a tool customer at Smith & Hawkins. So welcome, Paul. Thank you so much, Dave. I uh, really appreciate being here with you. It's a, it's a real honor. Yeah, this is great. Um, I, I like to start a little bit on the personal, and um, it's interesting. When I looked at your books and thought about them, I saw the perspective getting bigger and bigger and bigger uh, with, with each book as uh, we saw how things connected on a bigger and bigger level. Um, so I'd like to start on a very small personal level, just to give people a little bit of perspective of uh, how you came to uh, think about agriculture and food. Um, uh, and I, I know that for you, it started very personally as uh, truly embracing the idea of food as medicine. Could you just talk about that a little? Yeah, sure. Um yeah, the, my background on food actually goes back to when I was six months old. <laughs> and I was the uh, earliest diagnosed case of asthma in San Mateo County where I was born. Um, and it was a serious case. And six-month-old children don't get asthma, generally speaking. They get it older. Um, but um, And I was in an oxygen tent for... Six weeks, I'm told, when I was 14 months, because I was told, my parents were told I was going to die, so they, and, <laughs> but somehow I didn't. Anyway, I got out of that, but I had asthma all my life until I was um, 20 years old, and at that time, I had read a book um, that said, if you're sick, it's your fault, and it made me really mad. <laughs> I said, well, it wasn't my fault. And, um, but I knew in some way that there was a truth in that, not like fault, but it's my responsibility. And, uh, I went on a very restricted diet for 10 days and that was just rice and tea. In other words, eliminating everything possible, but it wasn't fasting, but it was uh, a very restricted diet. And I, within 10 days, my symptoms went away for the first time. 
And I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. You know, I've been going to the best doctors and this and that and, you know, double dosing on my prescriptions of aminophilin and ephedrine and I'm going, you know. And so then I spent a year going back and forth, like, okay, now I'm going to eat this and see what happens. If you go on a very restricted diet, then if you drink a glass of apple juice, have a beer, you know, eat a donut, you know, or even good things, um, you actually experience the, 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 its effect on your body. But when you eat a wide variety of food, you cannot experience it. You experience the effects, but there's so many effects and there's synergetic effects and so forth. So for a year I did that and I thought, whoa, food is powerful. I had no idea how powerful it was. And 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 I realized at that time that it was very difficult to get natural food. You know, this is in the 60s. I mean, you had to go to the Chinatown, Japan town to the Seventh-day Adventist store for the, you know, to Leb- the, uh, the Lebanese store for the lentils. You had to go to the farmer's market for the organic vegetables. You know, it was like... And so the Erwan, the, the first store, was really like a farmer's market in the city, you know. And we didn't sell vitamins, we didn't sell pills, we didn't sell nostrums, we just sold food. Uh, and um, the, the, the turning point for me on organics was that I thought everything I was selling was organic. I mean, because, and somebody came into the store one day, this is in Boston, and said, how do you know? Um, your oats are organic, you know, and I said because it says so, <laughs> you know, organically grown. And and then, or how do you know your oil is cold pressed, you know, and the same thing because it said so. And so I wrote to is this Hain at that time for the oil and wrote him a letter saying I need a you know tell me about your oil and they wrote back a letter that said well it's, there's really no cold pressed oils anymore they're cold processed which means they're refrigerated, the steroids are taken out. And I, it really sort of shocked me um, that somebody could say something and mean something else on a food label, you know. And that week, the organic oats came, and I was buying them from Mennonites in Pennsylvania. And as I grabbed the bags of oats coming off the truck, uh, I read the tag, you know, the sewn into the Bemis bag, and it said National Oak Company, Des Moines, Iowa. And I was like, you know, <laughs> bag after bag after bag. And so I called up the National Oak Company in Des Moines, Iowa, and a very nice woman answered the phone, and I said, tell me about your organic, you know, farming program. And she said, what? And I said, you know, the organic, you have organic oats and so forth. And she said, could you explain that to me, you know? And I said, sure. And I did, and he said, honey, we just buy oats and roll them. <laughs> you know? yeah. And that was really, had those two things not happened, I think I would have just moved on. You know, I was in the store, it didn't do much business, so I got to read a lot, which I liked. And then, but that was what started me on the um, sourcing. And I decided that every single thing that, I sold in the store that I would know the farmer, walk the land, um, trace its origins, that it would be absolutely the real deal. Um, and because then as now, by the way, or now as then, <laughs> uh, there's fraud. I mean, there's misrepresentation. Um, and uh, now we have it you know, built in, the misrepresentation into USDA thing. Certification, but at that time it was kind of the wild west in terms of labeling, and so that is what got me interested in food. And once you open that up, then it's just an endless world of fascination in, in terms of nutrient density, in terms of what is soil, how do you farm? I mean, the different, the variety of foods. There's thirty-one thousand edible foods in the world, and we eat about twelve, you know, in the United States for about eighty to ninety percent of our diet. And so um, that's really how it began. And of course, I, for the first time in my life, I felt good. I didn't take any pharmaceuticals. I, um, I ran. I mean, I, I played athlete you know, athletics in high school, you know, but I had to take medicine to do it. And so for the first time I could um, run, swim, do all these things, you know, with with lungs that were just completely free and open. And uh, 
um, it was a it was a happy event. It really was. Yeah, you ha- so you had an experience of food as medicine that was to you undeniable. It was your lived experience. It wasn't. Oh, that's a that's a cool idea. Right. I mean, a lot of things are sold now. Okay, you get ashwagandha does this. You do buy this and does that. You buy, you know. I mean, it's conceptual. It's hard to experience it because if food has an impact on you, generally speaking. It's a slow impact. In other words, it's it's cumulative. It's not like you eat it and whoa, you know. If something has an impact like that, it's either a drug or coffee. And um, but food isn't supposed to have that impact. You know, it's supposed to be something that's cumulative. And so, and the way we eat, you know, when we add these uh, phytonutrients, you know, we add these adaptogens. When we add these ingredients, you know, we can't necessarily immediately tell what impact they have on our body. You know. Um, and so I just was lucked out, you know, early on by going to such a restrictive diet and then, and, and being curious really. And like, Oh, let me try this one. Oh, let's, let me have a strawberry milkshake. Whoa. (laughs) You know, uh, and, uh, well, that was amazing. I don't want to do that again. So it was a process of elimination, but not by concept, if you know what I mean. Not, oh, this is bad, this is good, I should eat only good food, this is a bad food, this has too much sugar in it, this is dairy. For sure, but in my case, it was all experiential. That is to say, I really did um, sort it out so that I, I've always eaten, everything I've, I've eaten in my life, I, 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 get, I eat whatever I want, put it that way. I never restrict my diet. I eat exactly what I want. What I want happens to be very healthy, but that's what my yeah. body, that's what my body wants. Yeah, that's. I think. I think your story is an example of a beautiful constraint, and uh, because you had such sensitivity to what you were eating, you're able to learn a great deal, um, and it it motivated you to be really one of the early pioneers in the organic food movement, and. When you started, uh, there weren't many organic wholesalers. You, you were one of the very first suppliers to a lot of other stores. So since then, your, your child has grown up um, and uh, now certified organic sales uh, exceed what, 50, 60 billion now. It, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a huge thing. It's a wonderful thing because people are seeking something different from the chemical system. And uh, the fact that you've got whatever, uh, 40 million Americans who are willing to pay extra for organic food, I think that's, that's an amazingly positive development. The, the negative development is that it, it has become a, a sought after market and often by people who I feel have no right to claim it, but they, but they do. They do. So as you look at your, at your young, your, 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 something that really you helped to cultivate as an infant and now it's out on its own in the world, what are your feelings towards, towards the organic brand as opposed to the organic movement? Well, the organic movement was at the outset in the sixties was <clears throat> just amazing people. I mean, and um, the farmers and the producers. I mean, we had a good time, and we we knew we we're onto something. And um, but as as retailers and wholesalers, we did notice fraud, misrepresentation, and um, even got a I. I tested something once. I uh, won't say which company. I th- think it still exists and um, in LA. And we just did tests when I had Erwan. We just had a lab. We just did. Te- we tested all the time. You know, like mm-hmm. and uh, and I uh, I didn't. We had no way to publish it. You know, it was no internet or you know we weren't blogging about it and so forth. But but the word got out that this company was fraudulent the, the test was fraudulent and I, and they, they 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 actually made death threats to me because <laughs> they were doing a lot of business and so fred rowe who started new age natural foods in san francisco uh and was a close friend and a running buddy 
Um, so he and I and some other people started what was called Organic Merchants. O-M, OM, you know. we, <laughs> And we were sort of a certifying organization. We were certifying, you know, the OM stamp. It was certified, you know. Now, was it as sophisticated as, you know, TILT and CCOF and everything? No. <laughs> but it was a network, you know, where it was like, yeah, this is cool, this is cool, this is not cool, they don't get the OM stamp and so forth. The people who got involved with that then became the people who created C C the first official, you know, certification organization in the country, CCOF. So, uh, until, so, um, I feel like we encountered the same problems then that we encountered to this day, you know, which is that people will pay more for it. Um, and therefore those people who want to sell it. <laughs> I mean, there's, from their point of view, there's bigger profit margins, you know, and um, which isn't really true if you're selling the real deal, you know, the profit margins are not bigger. The, the cost is higher, maybe, but not the profit margins. And so um, it is, is, is wonderful to see, but at the same time, um, when you think of, you know, 30,000 acre carrot farms in, you know, the here near Stockton, you know, and I mean, they're, they're technically organic, you know, but I mean, one of the things I noticed as a farmer and as a grower and as a buyer, all those things is that most of those carrots are, have a split in them. Like, and, and I, I don't know a single organic grower in the world that grows carrots that have a split in them. And the only way a carrot gets a split in it is because it's growing too fast. In other words, it's too much nitrogen. Well, how can an organic grower get too much nitrogen? I don't know how they do it. it I've never asked. Um, but, you know, it's like, that's not an organic carrot. I mean, it's technically it is. But, you know, when you go to the farmer's market, these carrots are tight, they're wound, they're, you know, they're beautiful, they're multicolored, they're not all sim the same, you know, PMS color. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so you get the, you're getting a uniformity, you know, that really is the nature of the big food. Big food needs uniformity. It needs the same thing every time, you know. And um, so the varieties are the same and the methodology is the same and the soil is, in a sense, processed to be the same soil everywhere they're growing. In other words, and soil actually is extraordinarily diverse, you know, as you know. And, and so you're seeing an organic movement, you know, imitating big food. And, uh, and I say not the movement you and I know, but the movement that is being sort of taken up by um, big food, big, re big retailers. Uh, and it's not all bad. I mean, there is a, a famous story about Roosevelt and um, President Roosevelt when uh, somebody came in and, and uh, I forget who it was, the person, but was going on and on and on and he left the room and Roosevelt was furious and, and, and the Bernard Baruch was there, his friend, and said, He's such a hypocrite, and wow, 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 you're just railing about this man's hypocrisy. And Baruch said, calm down, calm down. He said, you know, um, when you've been a liar all your life, you have to start somewhere. <laughs> 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 so hypocrisy is, is, is on the path <laughs> to truth, you know. <laughs> so uh, I kind of see it that way as well, you know, which is that there, there's an awakening. They're waking up, going, well, wow, those customers, are, those human beings, they want this, they'll pay for it. Wow, we, we should do something, you know. But they're doing it within a framework that is very much about uh, a food system that is about uniformity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked to Alice Waters for this, and she's very interesting about fast food culture and that fast food is becoming we are becoming a nation of fast food culture and and the values of fast food culture are cheapness, uniformity, speed. And uh, she's right. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thing that it, it's like the water that we swim in. We take it for granted because it's, these are the values of our culture. Uh, things sh cheaper is better, faster is better, more uniform is better. 
And of course, they aren't always better. That's that's a value judgment. That's not that's not a fact. Um, you bring up an interesting thing about as we as the giants come into the room and and come into the tent and you know I know for myself I have some confusion because we want to transform the whole food system we want I go yeah we want to convert General Mills to what we're doing um, we want that food to be we want the food we grow to be available to everybody in the world right and so it's wonderful to get these big giants say oh i think we should be doing that and the challenge that we face is when they they see that there's a tremendous market advantage to being part of the brand but they don't necessarily believe that they need to really change and maybe they can't change maybe there are limits to growth maybe schumacher was right that you simply can't do on a larger scale what you can do on a small scale but it, it is a complicated issue for me um, I, I have felt like, well, I would welcome them if they would, if they would play fair. Um, but it's almost, you know, like the scorpion stinging the, the, the fox that's swinging across the river. Why'd you do that? It's in my nature. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, it's an interesting question about scale. My own personal belief is that it, um, <clears throat> let's call it biological agriculture for a minute, because, you know, uh, it doesn't scale, uh, to a, it does to a certain point, and then after that, it falls off. And it falls off because in order for it to be done properly, you need um, you need somebody on the soil. That means a human being, <laughs> and that human being uh, needs to be on that soil year after year after decade and so forth. Because there is symbiosis. the the uh, the the soil, the plants, the covers, the biodiversity, the insects, etc., uh, the animals that may be grazing or otherwise. I mean, all that is feedback, and and then that feedback then is a learning, and that learning then is applied, and and that learning is also applied to uh, weather regimes. You know, the droughts, to you know, flood, to percolation rates, to you know, uh, I mean, it just goes on and on, and so that kind of relationship. I think can scale to a certain level to probably maybe thousand acres, two thousand acres. I don't know. Gabe Brown has five thousand. He seems to do it really well, but I don't, it doesn't scale the, uh, to commercial agriculture at all. And so that's where when when General Mills announced regenerative, uh, I wish they had define it um, because it <laughs> like. No-till includes, you know, glyphosate. Well, not in my world, and I don't think in your world. And so, uh, cover, yeah, but which cover, you know, crops, and are they are they adjusted year to year according to, you know, what you're seeing? And uh, or, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And and so, yeah, it's great that they uh, see it. They understand it. I've met the person who's in charge of the program uh, once. Lovely, lovely human being. I don't doubt that at all, yeah. by the way. it's that's. I'm not trying to demonize anybody or anything so much as that That as the these big companies move into now regenerative agriculture, um, the um, standards are changing. I remember once when I gave a talk at a, a university and uh, a professor the night before gave me this beautiful, beautiful uh, book of poetry, and uh, and not not but his, but you know, and um, I thanked him and so forth. And he and he mentioned he write he's he writes poetry, and I said, oh really? He said, yes, I write a poem every day. I said, wow. I said, that is really difficult. And I said, how do you do that? And he said, I just lowered my standards. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, okay, that works. <laughs> you know, and so that's what you're seeing, you know. I mean, you're seeing this kind of, okay, let's regenerative. Well, how can we do that? Well, you, you, it's, they don't see it as lowering the standards. They see it as... As, 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 I guess, I don't know how they see it, but I mean, just the standard that we can do that conceptually, you know, basically conforms 
to regenerative agriculture, you know. And uh, so I think that what we're going to see is, what we're seeing in a sense is big ag doubling down. It's like, okay, it didn't work so well, but now we're going to go this way because, you know, this will work better. And so you have Cargill doing, you know, carbon farming, you know, you have Bayer, Monsanto now is talking about carbon farming, you know, it's like, you know, it's like run. And so, (laughs) but this idea that somehow scale, if they double down on whatever it is, they're double down on regen, regen, carbon farming, whatever they want to call it, name it, say it, uh, that is not going to solve the problem. The, the, the problem is caused by scale. And the, the scale problem is the symbiosis with the food business. And if you're a Pepsi, if you're a Nabisco, if you're a General Mills, if you're a Kellogg's, if you're and go on and on and on, so forth, you need uniformity when it comes in because it has to be uniform when it goes out. So that means the farming itself is specced to big ag. A big food, excuse me. In other words, so uh, so you can't go, oh, I'm going to grow some blue corn this year. No, you're not. This is Kellogg's. You're going to grow this corn, and it's GMO corn, and it's this amount of protein. It has to be, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have this amazingly um, counterproductive uniformity that has settled across farmlands, you know, in the world, all over the world, in Europe, in Argentina, here, in Brazil. Uh, and that is the relationship to big food because that's who's buying, you know. And um, so I, I, it's not that we don't welcome people to, to wake up. We do and to be interested in soil health, which didn't seem to be on their agenda for a long time. And they're using the terminology, the health of soil. How novel is that? And <laughs> you're like, wow, it's alive? Yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, it's fun to make fun of it, you know, to poke fun at it. But at the same time, um, I think it's going to, I, I've thought for a long time and Real Organics is doing it. I've always, I've thought for quite a while, we need a, another uh, imprimatur. We need another standard um, because, um the ones in Europe are really good. They they really are, and they're they're really well enforced and well, and well adopted and well agreed upon by both producers and and uh, and farmers. Here, that's not the case, and so I'm really happy about real organic because I feel like um, we need to set the bar. It's actually it's almost reset the bar. <laughs> the bar kept going lower. No, let's reset the bar because. Uh, organic was always a process of discovery uh, for the farmer, for sure, you know, but there was principles. <laughs> and th- those principles uh, were uh, uh, both written and even unspoken in some way. Like you would never imagine, you know, laying down glyphosate so you could grow something organic. I mean, that was just, it's inconceivable. Of course, glyphosate didn't exist when it started, but um, so the idea that you could mix and match or that you could somehow, you know, finagle everything to kind of thread your way through to come up with something that has the organic, uh, you know, mark and certification uh, never occurred to all the people I worked with in the 60s and 70s, you know. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you've, you've named it very well. You know, I'm struck... When you talk about uh, Cargill and Air Monsanto now embracing regenerative, and I'm reminded uh, in a related thing about climate that Monsanto was one of the the real champions of something called the uh, climate smart agriculture. Uh, it it seems so cynical, but but maybe they were maybe there were good people in there saying. Well, we need to address climate. But, uh, of course, their idea of climate smart agriculture was pretty much how they did things, right? Exactly. <laughs> they said, we're no-till because we, we you know, yeah. we use the Roundup, and so we don't till, and so we don't burn up the carbon. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. It's called, yeah. It was called conservation agriculture. Yeah. Lay down the glyphosate. We're not tilling, just like you told us to. You know, it's interesting because in my, 
in my uh, uh, Buddhist practice, one of the people I got to sit with in retreats was Bob Shapiro. He was the CEO of Monsanto. <laughs> and so, uh, again, really nice guy. Um, uh, and he presided over Monsanto in that transition from uh, what they were doing prior to that to uh, GMO seeds. You know, and so I had lots of conversations with Bob about that and, you know, the ethics of it. And even some people like Peter Raven at, at Missouri Botanic actually took the side of Monsanto. Of course, Monsanto was right there in St. Louis and a funder of Missouri Botanic Garden, which is one of the great botan botanical gardens in the country. And Peter is an amazing scientist. Um, but there, it, it was so interesting, to, again, to, as I remember it anyway, to the rationales and how it was, you know, constructed, uh, the mindset of we are doing good for the world, you know, and, and yeah, some people don't understand it yet, but they will, you know, and also the underlying mantra, which is spoken and always um, there is, if we don't do this, the world will starve. We're here to feed the world, which is so interesting. And, and, um, because it's upside down and backwards. If we want to starve, keep tr doing what we're doing. That's going to, <laughs> that that will starve the world because soil will die, and um, and 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 it be profoundly non-resilient um, to climate disruption, which is the jet stream going haywire. You know, with too much water, too little water, too much heat, too much cold at the wrong times and different times of the year than normally uh, has been experienced, and so. We are going towards starvation with industrial agriculture. Absolutely, dead on. We're, we, our, our sights are, are perfectly, our compass is really working in that way. But using that as, as the rationale, of course, uh, made all the gainsayers guilty. You know, like, oh, you want children to starve, right? You know, please leave us alone, you know. Um, and it worked. It really did work. And uh, they, everybody got a hall pass in a way for, basically producing the the most ubiquitous pesticide on the face of the earth. It's not DDT, it's not parathion, it's not malathion, it's glyphosate. And and whoever thought, whether internally or externally in the EPA, thought that a water-soluble pesticide was a good idea. I mean, how did that happen? Every if the worst pesticide company knew they had to be fat soluble, okay, so that it didn't get into water, it didn't break down in the water, it didn't go in the water table, you know, and so it was, had to be lipophilic, and and then now we have a hydrophilic pesticide, you know, which guarantees it is in every almost every water system in the Midwest, you know, if you have a well, you're going to get glyphosate. Uh, it's in the rivers, in the Mississippi, in the Missouri, it's in all the tributaries. Anytime there's runoff from any agricultural situation, you're going to have glyphosate in the water. Uh, and it's ubiquitous now in our foods and it causes leaky gut. And leaky gut is basically the pathway or the gateway to a, 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 a myriad of different uh, diseases and uh, uh, health impacts, you know. And so... <laughs> This is to feed the children, right? You know, it's actually again, it, it's it's upside down, backwards. So, the 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 the, the organic, the what I call the biological food movement, but and and the and big industry, big food, big ag are meeting, and what a fascinating meeting that is. Because I do think that the CEOs, that the not all, but many of the people in these companies actually do get it. They actually get it. I mean, they got like, you know, Houston, we have a problem. I mean, Earth, we have a problem. They get, they actually, they really do. They got holy, you know, whatever. And they have children, they have grandchildren. And they actually see that the future doesn't look good. They can't see far ahead now because of what's happening today. And, and, and so what we're dealing with is a framework of understanding that the way they see the world and they're trying to fit in, I think, what is good science, basically, or, or a good prognostication 
of what's going to happen into their framework. And that framework has to change. And that framework, though, is a systems uh, uh, framework. It's the system itself that teaches, you know, promulgates uh, this way of being in the world, operating in the world, selling in the world, you know, producing in the world. And I think sometimes in the climate movement, we, we, we too much emphasize the, the, the individual, you know, the, the person, you know, like, you know, she should do this, he should do that. Or if you are a farmer, you should do that. Or if you have a small business, you can do this and all that sort of stuff, all good and right and true. But what we, we don't talk about is the systems themselves and the impact the, that they have. And if we're going to make the changes we need, there have to be systemic changes as well. I mean, gosh, you know, I mean, you have Pepsi-Cola, you know, actually literally talking about looking into regenerative agriculture for what? Corn, for Doritos. And uh, basically, what else? High fructose corn syrup, right? For Mountain Dew, for Gatorade, for Pepsi-Cola, for, I mean, so forth. And they're looking at regenerative, um, uh, excuse me, renewable energy. Okay. You say, great, you know, like a circus seal. Yay, you know, they got it. No, they don't. They have the biggest trucking fleet in the world. Bigger than UPS, bigger than FedEx, bigger than FedEx and DHL put together. 35,000 trucks go out every day from Pepsi-Cola around the world. And 92% of what's on that truck is ultra-processed junk food that causes obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, etc. And so, and we're talking about renewable energy. And so we like, wait a minute, what are we selling? And, and to whom and how do we really want Beyonce to sell our children of color more Mountain Dew, more Pepsi? Really? I mean, it, it, that's innate in the system. And, and so we really got to look at this, the system overall, you know. And so that's what, let's say, Unreal Organic <laughs> is dealing with, you know, is dealing with a system. And the system is taking over through our government and through corrupt political processes, is taking over um, principles and definitions. Okay, well, so it feels like we've wandered into the land of blessed unrest. And, um, and at, at the very least, last time we talked, I felt we really didn't quite spend really any time on blessed unrest, which I think was a very important book. Um, so you're talking about how do, we, how do we create systemic change, right? I, I, I agree with you. We need to change systemically. It's not... We do have a bad president, but it's not just that we have a bad president. And it's not that we have a bad secretary of agriculture. I don't think we have a good secretary. But it's not just about getting a good person someplace. Right. It's about the system because the system is prone to this kind of corrupting influence. So how, how do you think, how do we create change on a systemic level? Well, first of all, there are, there are questions that I call Wizard of Oz questions, you know, which is that if I, if I told you <laughs> how to do it, you know, then Toto better pull the curtain back right away and say, look, hey, come on, that's bullshit. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And he doesn't because no one knows. Let's talk about what we do know, you know. Okay. Um, the system has deep, deep roots. I mean, you know, it's not like this decade or this century you know it goes way back and it's a fascinating exploration historically in terms of the church for god's sakes the enlightenment the i mean you know we've been suppressing women we whatever i mean in the west for or many other places too but i mean for 2500 years you know i mean so you 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 look at the systems that exist right now, the, the social political systems, you know, and if you pull the string on that flower bag, it goes way back. Okay, what we are now in is is in in approaching crises and emergencies that, uh, and I I do believe the, I don't think it'll be called this, but the climate movement will be the the biggest movement in the history of humanity, and not because of 
mm, somebody organized it or there's a leader or Martin Luther King, it's because of weather, <laughs> pure and simple. And that is that it is going, the science is going to change from conceptual to experiential. And as long as it was conceptual, and, you know, science was using acronyms and, you know, 35, you know, GT, CO2E, you know, it's like, what does that mean? Or, you know, using uh, jargon and lingo, uh, it, 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 there is a climate of Babel and there has been a climate of Babel. And, and you go, you read it, even I, I look at things and sometimes it's like so full of acronyms and chemical formula and going, oh God, this is so... I, I feel tired before I even read it, you know, because I have to sort through it and do these, you know, sort of, you know, interpolations in my head and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, one of the things Bill McKibben does so well is just write the thing he wrote yesterday in the New York Times and said the new, you know, IE report on <laughs> the world energy. <laughs> he said it's similar to the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue because it's full of male fantasies. <laughs> <laughs> about how much energy we're going to use for how long, and um, and and he's a genius when it comes to from the end of nature that original book you know to today uh, as he writes for the uh, New Yorker. But the, the 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 thing we know is that is that this is a complex adaptive system, right? And uh, that systems jargon okay just between you and me <laughs> and we know a lot about them and so what do we do to change a system you know overall systems and so forth you know and we create the conditions for them and we create the conditions you know when you think about organic farming what are you doing you're creating conditions in the soil you are not the seed you are not the brilliance that's going down underneath the soil between the microbiota and the mycelium and you know, you are not any of that. You are just creating conditions, you know. And uh, so when we look at it socially, there's been this thing that's top down, you know, like the Conference of the Parties and Christiana Figueres and the Paris Agreement and, and then governments, you know, policy, um, city mandates, etc. And then we have this thing about the individuals, you know, what can you do, you know, which is a little bit diminutive because... You should, oh, well, you should stop eating so much meat and, you know, don't waste your food and you should bike as often as possible and use cold water in your washing machine. You know? And so what happens is when people hear that, they know the problem, that these are not insufficient to the task at hand. And then they see pretty much um, dysfunction on the higher you go up, basically, uh, on policy and governmental levels, the more dysfunction there is. It's not true in all countries for sure, but it is overall. And so you look at that and go, well, how do you make change? You know, well, you, you do it from the middle out. And that doesn't mean you don't try to influence the top. It doesn't mean you don't try to change individual activity according to agency, you know, because we all have different agencies. There's no such thing as an individual, you know, there's no such thing. It's a, that's a myth. Um, if, if, if there was an individual on this earth and he or she was alone, they would just perish for loneliness and <laughs> they'd be gone. <laughs> they wouldn't want to even stay here. And so, I mean, we are, we are agents in so many ways. We're homeowners or we're renters or we're starving students or we're CEOs or we have a small company or we're farmers or we're mayors or we're city council persons, we're professors. We have, we're in charge of buildings and grounds at the elementary school. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And so there's so much individuals can do if their agency is addressed as opposed to, oh, the number one solution is refrigerant management. Well, so what? There's nothing you can do about it, you know? And the number two one is wind turbines. I can't do, I can't do a wind farm, you know, but you can do, what can you do? As a renter, hard to do. As a householder, you can change your energy to renewable. But overall, when you look to systemic change, you create the conditions and the conditions are people coming together, their community. And this holds true for food as well, by the way, which is the way you change the food system is to walk away from it. And the way you walk away from it change your diet, and buy the best food you can locally. And to figure out why other people cannot have access or buy it, the best food locally. It's really, really crucial. And to change that. 
so that they are producers, they are invested, they benefit, they can afford. Uh, so they're in the same loop, you know, uh, knowing that they start, you know, in food deserts, you know, but there's two food deserts in this country. One is in cities and the other is out in the Midwest. There's two food deserts. And those farmers are just as much of a food desert as are people in um, impoverished and marginalized communities in our cities, you know. And so, so what are those conditions? And to me, they, I think that the climate movement made a mistake because it, and it still does in the, in, in, in the sense of this phrase, future existential threat. And, 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 you can go down the street all day long and ask people, are you worried about future existential threats? And they'll look at you like you're nuts. Like, because the brain doesn't work that way. Now you can have a concept and understand it scientifically, conceptually, you know, logically. Yeah, there's a threat and that's good science. There's no question about it. But we hear, you hear people talk about a future existential threat or you hear people say, oh, it's here now, you know? Well, okay. Uh, both are true. But what it is, neither are true for a person. And unless we have a movement that addresses current human needs, it won't work. It will fail. Because that's who we are. That's what happens every morning when we wake up. We think about today, okay, da 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 da. What? We don't think about 2050 when we wake up <laughs> or 2030. Or 2021, unless it's the election. Okay, we think about we think about this day, and then maybe this week, and then we go out that way, you know. But most people in the world don't get past today. It's about food. It's about safety. It's about food security. It's about you know exigencies that they have on a daily basis that maybe we who are privileged do not have okay that we're free from them but most of the people are not and so the climate movement or the climate solutions have to they don't have to they benefit people in so many ways myriad ways and if we are not in a sense working to implement those in communities of color, in localized poor, in areas of the world that are being marginalized and have been marginalized by the existing economic systems, social political systems, by food systems, by war, by everything, then w there's not going to be a movement at all and so forth. And um, the thing about regeneration is that when you think about regeneration, when most people when I mention say, oh yeah, ag. No. Yes, but everything, you know, because regeneration is the default mode of nature. We stop cutting, burning, poisoning nature. It goes into, it regenerates. Same with our body. And the, we are life and we are nature. And our, the way we come together is nature too. And communities, the way we, you know, the conurbations of humanity, our nature and so forth. So the same principles that apply to our soil apply to us as people. Uh, and um, and so when we have a climate movement that is about wonder, about cele celebrating, you know, creating more, not, not more stuff, but better, a better life for all of us together, you know, wherever we are, in whatever circumstances we are, we have a climate movement. And the systems, by the way, which back to your question, you know, and so forth, will change. They will change because if you're not, if you don't have a client for your system, then that's you know problematic. Now there are some systems that depend on politics, like politics being one of them. And in the new book, I have a chapter on the politics industry. It's a ten billion dollar industry, and we don't see it as an industry. We see it as politics. Well, fool you, fool you, fool you. It is not politics. It's industry. And uh, and we know because 17% uh, uh, is the approval rating of Congress, of the Senate and the House, you know, in the, and that's been very steady. And 94% of every congressperson gets reelected. Well, well, how does that happen? That's how does the, that happen? That's the industry. And it, it's, it's a, it's, it set itself up in a brilliant way 
to make that happen. 88% of senators get elected with six years ter- six year terms and so forth. And the, the, the divisiveness, the polarity, the polemics, the, the, you know, and moving towards God knows where, the way it's going, actually is the industry. It's, that's created by the industry. It benefits from that because it's either or instead of, can we have a reasonable voice who actually brings us together? Where is that reasonable voice? I mean, it doesn't because we're so separated. But that's that's an outcome of the politics industry. So that's going to be, I think, a very difficult one to address because it has so much momentum and money. And as all the media are enablers, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, they're all enablers of it because they profit from it. Yeah. 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 All right. I agree with what you said. But here's my question. I, I was at a rally once and... I was giving a great talk and, and people were like, yeah. And then somebody calls out, what can we do? Yeah. And I was absolutely had no answer. <laughs> I, I had this terrible, well, you could write a letter to yeah. the USDA, right? Which I knew would do nothing. Right. I knew that. And, and it actually was one of the moments in which the Real Organic Project was born. Because I thought, well, what can they do? What can I do? You know, and so I, I, turn, I give you that question. I, I heard what you say, and it's a, it's a complex and subtle answer, actually. I mean, because it involves thinking differently. Yeah. And let, it's like, I'm going to move over here and see the world from this perspective, and it's quite different. So let me ask you, okay, and I'm going to read your book. You know that. Regeneration, your next book I'm looking forward to. So tell me, I'm just a citizen of the commons, and... Uh, what can I do? Such a good question. The, the person who called out from the audience to me was my wife. And she said, if, if your next book doesn't tell me what to do, I'm leaving you. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I hope you've come up with a good I answer. <laughs> I am. And, but uh, she made a good point. And as did the person uh, asking you, which is, so uh, regeneration, ending the climate crisis in one generation, okay, that's the subtitle, is fundamentally a what-to-do book. It's not like, wow, look at this, look at this, and isn't this wonderful, and uh, this is possible. Yeah, all that's there, but it's fundamentally a what-to-do. Now, there's five things that we need to do, because as it, it, whatever level of agency, we need to reduce and stop putting greenhouse gases up there because it's obvious. But we need to protect. And, and what I mean by protect is there's 2,000 gigatons of carbon, not CO2, carbon in our terrestrial systems, you know. That's our grasslands, our farmlands, our forest lands, our wetlands, our tidal salt marshes, you know. Um, and, um, that's almost two and a half times more carbon than is in the atmosphere. So those biomes and ecosystems need to be protected. We need to keep this carbon here. And and as they degrade, as they burn, as they're broken open, as they are overgrazed, as they are um, um, uh, harmed, like the the great rainforest, uh, the Kalimantan, you know, in Indonesia and so forth for palm oil, um, uh, the amount of carbon that goes up per hectare is extraordinary. In other words, we're losing that car- terrestrial carbon. This is in peatland carbon, of course. And so, and the only way you protect those is not, you can't just protect land. You protect the inhabitants, the denizens of land. And that is the plants and the animals and invertebrates and the vertebrates and the birds and the, and the, all the other creatures, both in, on top of and inside or underneath, you know. So, that is critical, and somehow we have seen biodiversity as like, well, you meet in China this year, and the, the climate people you meet in Glasgow this year, they got both got canceled, but they should be, they should be sitting on each other's lap. I mean, this, this, is, this is kith and kin. This is the same thing. So that's protect, and we talk a lot about that uh, in regeneration. And then there is sequester, which is bringing carbon back home. Okay, and drawing it down. And we talk about that. But there's two more things we talk about, which is support and influence. So support means you see something, you understand something like the boreal forest. I don't live in one. You don't live in one. There is one. It's the biggest, um, basically, 
um, uh, uh, source or sink of carbon in the world, okay? And it's being chopped down and made into toilet paper for Procter & Gamble, for example. Okay, so, um, so there's nothing we can do, but we can do something, which is <clears throat> we can support those organizations that are and doing it. And by volunteering, by communication, if we have money, even a small amount of money makes a big difference um, in numerous ways. And then we can influence. And using that same example, here's who you write to. This is the name of the CEO, okay? And this is, these are the issues and so forth. And this is what you should call out and say, and please don't tell us you're making it out of the waste limbs from the trees. So therefore you're not cutting down the forest. There wouldn't be waste limbs if somebody else wasn't wasting the forest. So we've, we've heard your excuse. It doesn't fly. Would you please stop basically degrading one of the most important ecosystems in the world and so forth? Okay. So, so, with every solution, I mean, so there's a, there's a sort of the, the framework, okay? Then what we do is we break it down by agency. So what a person, as I said, renting, a renter can do, or a starving student can do, is very, very different than a householder who owns their own home, right? Uh, who has land, for example, you know, not much, some or a lot, uh, which is different than, say, uh, somebody who's in charge of a building, buildings and grounds, or the building supervisor, or what an architect can do, what an engineer can do, what a professor can do, what a business person, a small business person can do, etc. I can just keep going up and scaling, and you know, city council, mayor, governor, and so forth. So we actually talk about what are the seven most impactful things you can do between now and 2030 to reduce your emissions by 45%, which is basically SR15 goal for 2030. And then we go to 2040, and then we go to 2050, you know, another 50, another 50, but um, to net zero. But so that there is a very specific um, recommendations that do have the most impact that you can have and, and from where you are as opposed to this is what has the most impact. Well, it does, that's conceptual. If you can't do it, then, you know, you feel marginalized and so forth. So, so it is what to do. And then we, we team up with Damon Gamow who did the movie 2040. And then we have a whole video series coming up, which is how to do it. Teachers, farmers like Charles Massey and Colin Seiss, you know, and others, but Mary Reynolds and Isabella Tree, and I can name, there's this amazing people, as you know, out there who are so wise and learn so much and have the humility of learning, <laughs> which learning brings to you. Um, and we will have uh, short form videos, maybe they're 15 or maybe they're four 15 minute ones or whatever, kind of like what you're doing, um, but they're teaching videos. And so you have the what to and you have the how to. Uh, and then finally, you have a way to connect uh, your group of regenerators. You know, here come the regenerators, you know. I mean, the regenerators are coming with regenerators in different parts of the world. So we get out of the way. In other words, we're not, the, we're not a hub, you know. Um, we are creating conditions for people to get in touch with each other. Uh, all over the world. That happened with Drawdown spontaneously. I don't know if it's still happening. I'm not there anymore. I assume it is, but that's what people want to do. They they want to get together. They want to be a we. They want to be community. They want to organize. They want to know what to do. Um, and they want to share with other people what they are doing and what is working and what they've discovered and and insights they have. And, and that's what it means to be a human being. That's a very natural proclivity. And so our job with regeneration is to try to help that along, but also to paradigmatically change it away from mitigating, tackling, fighting, net zero, carbon, <laughs> all those verbs, because um, verbs are not goals, uh, to regeneration, you know, which is that every system on earth is degenerating the planet and that pathway doesn't go much further before, you know, we hit the we hit the dead end. And regeneration is the pathway out, regenerating the biosphere and uh, the sociosphere, our communities, you know, our, uh, and all the other systems that we need and depend upon. Because the degeneration is so based on human activity, um, 
for me and I, I, I know for you, it's very clear that uh, human activity has to change in order to get to regeneration. And I've been very struck uh, lately as I see the growth of the alt-right and I go, you know, why are people getting so crazy and so hateful and so miserable? And I think that really uh, as uh, the old hubs of the community die away, things like the church and the grange and the community and whatever those hubs were, uh, the extended family, all those things, that people are seeking community. And if they can't find healthy community, they'll find unhealthy community. And so I'm really seeing that consciously we need to create opportunities in these movements to build community. Yes. It's it's not just, oh, and we need to have this good goal, but but we need to be connected. And it's the only way that it works. I so agree with you. I mean, of course, we have the hyper-enabler of the world, which is Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, you know, to um, create odd communities. But at the same time, uh, I've, you know, the, the task at hand for all of us is to reconnect, you know. I mean, this, this, is a, this is a earth that's been shattered. And to reconnect people to each other, to reconnect people to nature, which has been broken, and to reconnect nature to itself because of a habitat fragmentation and poisoning and so forth, that that link has you know, been shattered as well. And so regeneration is about stitching those broken strands back together. The way you heal a system, any system, is to connect more of it to itself. Whether it's immune system, an ecosystem, an economic system, so you know it. And what is a what is a what does a great regenerative farmer, organic farmer, do? It reconnects the land back to itself, you know, because what has been going on in commercial farming, industrial farming, and so forth is a, is is a complete disconnection. You know, breaking is breaking the links, breaking these extraordinary. Uh, miraculous things that happen you know in our uh, in our soil in our bodies you know in our creatures and so forth we don't have a clue yet as to how complex and beautiful it is except to um, recognize that that is so and to try to be you know in a sense um, uh, not even steward so much as as the people who honor it you know in every way we can and um, so we know what to do. What we don't know is how it's going to work out. But we do know. I do. I do think we do know that the the moment of truths are happening faster and sooner for more and more people. And what I say to people oftentimes, they think, "Well, we're not getting anywhere," and you know, the right this and that now. So yeah. But I'd say, in a sense, what we're doing, Dave, is rehearsing the future. And rehearsing the future. Yeah. 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 The future that is a future that is regenerative. We're rehearsing it, and what happens is when you kind of come to the end of your rope and you realize, God, I you know what you turn. Who do you turn to? You turn to somebody who you think understands, who has proven by their activity and in many ways that they are the person to go to or the people to go to. You know, it's working over there. My life isn't working. You go to where it's working. And so we just have to keep working, you know, and, 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 and community is a, a perfect example of working. You know, people are singing, somebody's got a guitar, somebody's they're sharing information, they're sharing good food. Uh, they know each other, they trust each other. Like, <laughs> who doesn't want that? And um, it's human nature. And so I feel like we, we just have to have that sense that, people will wake up, you know, and are they asleep? Yes. Are they mad? Yes. Are they angry? Yes. Why are they angry and mad? Because they're fearful. That's why, you know, and as I think it was, a, was it James Baldwin who said, you know, the reason people um, don't want to stop hating uh, because if they do, then they have to look at the sorrow and fear they have within themselves, you know. And, and, and what Trump has revealed is just how, frankly, unhappy and miserable Americans became and are. And it took a long time, and, and, and again, systems to create that. 
So I see those people with compassion. It makes me wince when I see, you know, trying you know, what they do, but but not in terms of human beings. You know, they they are desperate. They're reaching out. They have human needs just like all of us. And um, somebody took advantage of it, and, and a really uh, and in a really unintentionally uh, brilliant way. And um, so. I think our, the brilliance of this inchoate movement that we'll call <laughs> whatever name we want um, is more, much more brilliant than that because it is light-filled and it illuminates and it fulfills and it creates. Um, it's more fun. It's about wonder. It's about surprise. It's about celebration. It's about creation. And, and, and that's something no other movement can claim. Paul, thank you. I I can't. I think that's a perfect place to end our conversation today. It's uh, uh, yeah. I will carry that with me because you know it it helps me when somebody says, "What can we do?" And I I have the same question. So that is as good an answer as I found. So. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, follow, rate and review our show, and tell your favorite people about our work. You can find a real organic farm near you at realorganicproject.org forward slash farms.